with Luke Tim. Uh, I know it's your favorite podcast. You don't have to tell me because uh, it is awesome. And uh, I know I've been gone for a while. So sorry. I'm so very, very, very sorry. Things have been busy. I've got a bunch of really cool, very big projects going on. I'm not going to bore you those details at the moment, um, but you're going to hear about them pretty quick. Uh, I've got a coffee thing going. I know I've talked about that for a while, but man, things are happening. Things are getting close. Um, I'm working with Sudanese uh, Church here in Des Moines. That's kind of awesome. Um, but the project that we're going to talk about a little bit today in this podcast, not a whole lot. This is kind of the introduction right now to blowing up my good friend John Connor. So that's the interview today. Uh, it's over the phone. So it, there's a couple of spots where the lag is a little wonky. I've never done a phone interview before. But um, John was willing to to be there and and just give it a try. So he was my guinea pig. It worked out pretty well. Um, it's not bad. Uh, just like I said, a couple of spots, it gets a little bit weird. You'll figure it out. Anyways, the point is that this conversation is awesome because John Connor is awesome. That's just how it is. Uh, the guy knows a ton. He's very self-effacing, and he will tell you that he starts from stupid. He doesn't. Um, he, he's just a real humble guy. I like that about him. Um, in, in that regard, in many other regards, he and I are very different. <laughs> so he reads more than anybody I know. He's got a degree in apologetics. Uh, the guy just knows so much. And he's in this uh, church. It's a wonderful place. Small town Iowa. He writes amazing pieces of, of uh, literature for, for Christians to read. And nobody has access nobody even knows like his church newsletter is better than like 90 percent of the christian writing that's out there and i finally was like dude we got to get you we got to get you blowing up so i want you to share this podcast um we're also going to have a website up and running for him and social media stuff he's not trying to make any money doing this he is he does this anyways literally i want to just take his articles that he would normally just put in his in his newsletter and get him in front of you guys because man this guy needs to be blowed up needs to be out there people need to hear him so share this podcast uh get other people to listen to it uh, i mean this specific episode uh check out his stuff when, we, when it hits hang on tight boys and girls we do creation age of the earth we talk about gender uh transitions uh we talk about marriage it's all the things so without any further ado i'm just gonna let you uh hear for yourself just how awesome this guy is here is john connor Hey, buddy, how you doing? I am well. John Connor, it's great to talk to you again. You are live. Uh, actually, not. I mean, I'm recording this, so it's totally not live. <laughs> but this is the first time I have ever done this where I have actually talked to somebody on the phone instead of having them in studio. So you are my first. Well, I'll be your guinea pig. 
Yeah, it's going to be awesome. Um, yeah, so how you been, man? What's new? Oh, man. I, life with kids. I mean, it's just busy. You get it. So uh, uh, nothing new besides same old, same old, but it's good. You don't have that many kids. I mean, how many do you have now? Like two? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, six. Six. Six delightful, yeah, delightful children. You are in the half dozen club with oh, me, brother. I, I love it. Yeah. And, you know, five of ours are boys. And so I tell people, you know what that means. Everything we own is broken. Yeah, I stopped fixing the holes in yeah. my walls. I just gave up. Oh, yeah. I, I keep Gorilla Tape in business. I've taped so many things together with Gorilla Tape and super glue, and I, it's just exhausting. So where does your daughter fall in the um, order of birth? So she's number four. So she's eight. Uh, so she's we call her she's the little middle. The little middle. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah, we've got – so we've got three and three, and um, the last triplets, as you know, but it's like – it is so much – it feels like there's more boy in my house than girl because the girls are just so easy. The boys are just loud, rambunctious, and they're constantly smashing everything. Oh, it's man. insane. I, I'm always saying, hey, guys, new rule. We don't wrestle in the kitchen. I mean, how many times do I have to say this? <laughs> it's not oh, a yeah, new there's just a rule anymore. Pile. It breaks out all the time. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Well, for everybody listening, um, let's review. Uh, I have known you far too long. Um, I don't really yeah. uh, like you very much. Um, yeah. <laughs> just kidding. The feelings um, mutual. I mean, I, I share the same feeling. <laughs> no, since college, we have been friends, um, although we kind of ran in different circles in college. Um, and that is because mm-hmm. you are smart <laughs> and you make wise choices, whereas <laughs> I, uh, I like to make poor choices. I, and in fact, I seek them out. Um, so yeah, we, we were yeah, friends in do. college, but we didn't really hang out too much. Um, what is the crowd you no, hung out no, with in college? No. Oh, you know, I, I'm really weird. I hung out with uh, the pastor types, the youth, youth group types. I, I don't know, the church profession types, but, but really, and I think you know this about me, honestly, I mean, I enjoyed people, but I don't really feel the need that I had to be with a group of people to be happy. I just be happy. This is, this is why I'm a geek. I'd be just as happy to go find a book and read it. <laughs> and that, that would be just as enjoyable for me. Yeah. Would you consider yourself an introvert? Cause you don't seem like super introverted every time we're, uh, I mean, so you're in Iowa district West also, we but, hang out at pastors know, conferences, you, that sort of a thing. I, I would probably lean towards introverted, but here, here's here's what here's the difference. I enjoy meaningful conversation, meaningful debate. So you know that's the thing I like about my visit with you is we're not going to talk about stupid stuff that has no input, no no ramifications for life. Just just dribble. So that for me, if, if that's if that's the crowd, I'm not really interested in that sort of thing. But if we're going to have meaningful conversation. Yeah, uh, that I'll light up when that comes around because that that I enjoy. So I mean, I'm introverted in the sense that I don't need people, but I really enjoy that conversation with people when it's going to be something of substance. Yeah, man, I'm the opposite. Like I thrive on hanging out and talking with people. Um, 
Cause I, but part mm-hmm. of that is mm-hmm. I, I like finding ways to dig in. Like I don't, I don't have a lot of meaningless conversations. They may start that way. And then I just like, mm-hmm. I just, I like to pick people's brains and just, you know, let's, let's figure out. And people are just interesting to me. So I just keep asking questions and I always find something to be interested in. And I got that, I think from my dad growing mm-hmm. up, he, he mm-hmm. would always, always just talk to people and hang out and I'd be like, dad, let's just go. And then all of a sudden you find out that whoever he's talking to is like a World War II vet and has stories of killing Nazis. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, never mm-hmm. mind. This is awesome. <laughs> yeah. No, you do that well. That's why I appreciate when, I'm, when we're in the same circles because you do uh, provoke people until something interesting comes out. Yeah. So then in, in a seminary, we went to seminary together, um, started. And then did you stick around for an STM? I was trying to think of that earlier. No, I, I tossed it around, but, uh, well, as you know, our oldest was born during finals week, and I thought, oh, okay, that's the end of that. <laughs> well, we need an income. Yeah. yeah, your STM was my motorcycle. I, yeah. I wrecked my bike just before Isaac was born, and it was like, yeah, I guess I'm never going to have a motorcycle again. <laughs> oh, well. Yeah, okay, that's, that is done. That's right, yeah. But then you did go on, and you, you got a degree, um, in apologetics? Yes. Yeah, so uh, Biola University out of La Mirada, California, one of the leading apologetics uh, institutions in our country. What they did for me is, and they, they do, this is what their program is, it's a distance education program, so most of it's done online. You have to go out there for a couple of two-week stints. But, uh, so that's why it was possible for me, because as you know, in Western Iowa, you don't have a whole lot of local opportunities so I did a two-year Christian, Christian apologetic program out of, out of their uh, college, and it's just an excellent program, some big-name apologists. So, yeah, I picked that up a few years ago and uh, very much appreciated it. Yeah. Now, you're not the smartest person that both of us know because we have some mutual friends who are absolutely brilliant. Um, and yeah. We could both think of yeah. Ben Haupt and uh, Heath Curtis, but they both have chosen to do meaningless absolutely. things with their lives. So <laughs> there's – Yeah, <laughs> right, right, yeah. You know. They're brilliant. Both of them are absolutely brilliant. And the thing that, you know, irks me about those two guys that are brilliant. I mean, I, went, I roomed with Ben in college and I watched how many hours the guy spent on Mario Kart. <laughs> and he's still smarter than me. <laughs> I know. It's just it's, not fair. Seriously. You know, it's not. And he's, while we're in college, he's getting a degree in the classics of Greek whatever over at Wash U. I'm like, really? How's that even possible? I can barely get by with the classes I have at the sim and you're doing two at the same time. I don't get it, but they're brilliant. Yeah. No, but what you are is you are a student, um, by nature. And that's, I mean, that's different. Ben is just brilliant and Heath is brilliant, but they don't have to work. And that, that's what drives me crazy about him too. I mean, sitting in class at the seminary with Ben, he just had like a pencil behind his ear, like it was no big deal and didn't take a note and then aced every Mm -hmm. test. You hate that guy. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I'm I'm naturally stupid, so I I recognize, (laughs) all right, I'm starting from stupid. I'm going to have to do a lot of catch-up. Yeah. (laughs) That's my life. Like, I just, I know my nature. I start from stupid, and if I don't want to stay there, I'm going to have to work desperately to to learn. So that's my life. Yeah, but you retain it so well. That's what's fun is, I mean, every time we've sat down and had these conversations, it's like... I mean, you just are able to pull it out of a book, you know, from your head, like, well, this author writes this and that, and it just makes my head spin. I mean, I, I gather a lot of facts, but I mean, I, I usually can't say mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. I got that from. <laughs> you know, it's probably Google. 
So, and the, the reason why, yeah, Google, I get a lot of good stuff from Google, but the reason why I'm able to do that, it's not anything natural. Like I said, I, my starting place is stupid. That's where I start. <laughs> and so I say, how am I going to compensate for this and, and, you know, help myself not stay there? So when I, when I read, and you probably do the same thing, I'm a, a, you're a voracious reader, so am I, but I, I'm also marking up my books in visual ways to help me memorize. So circling keywords, uh, parentheses for keywords, certain way I underline. So it's a very visual experience, so I can actually map it out in my brain, the way I've marked it up. Then lots of times I'll go back through and type up the notes I've underlined, so I'm reinforcing it that way. And then I oftentimes will write newsletter articles for uh, for my church based on a lot of these works that I'm reading. So then I'm having to learn it to write it. So I, I've gone over it three different times by the time I've ever talked about it with anybody. So like I said, I start with stupid. And I have to compensate and that's how I do it. Yeah. And that's, yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because that's, that is kind of the genesis of a little project you and I are working on because your newsletter for your church is better than half of the stuff out there <laughs> that Christians read. And it's like, it's in this newsletter in a small town in Iowa. And it, it drives mm-hmm, me insane. Mm-hmm. Like, dude, we got to get this stuff out. <laughs> it's so good. You you are yeah. excellent at, at translating the nerd to the, the regular every day. And man, we, we got to get mm-hmm. that sort of stuff out there. So I'm hoping this, this little chat we're having is going to be um, an introduction to something much bigger. So, uh, with that in mind, yeah, that would be great. Because, a, like you said, like you told me before, and and just to, as a to build on that, um, what I'm good at is exactly what you said. I can take complicated subjects and make them understandable for the normal person. What I'm bad at is actually getting it beyond Manning, Iowa. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah, let me tell you how bad you are at that. <laughs> because yeah, just I'm recently, <laughs> we have a we have a mutual friend, and uh, I was just kind of chatting with him online on Facebook a little bit about nothing um, of consequence. He had surgery recently, and and I've had you know some physical issues as well. And we're talking about working out, and I said, "Hey, remember John Connor?" And because I was going to say mm-hmm. we're getting ready to you know push this thing and and try and get you out there and he goes oh no did he die (laughs) (laughs) yeah (laughs) yes i am really good at getting myself out there obviously (laughs) oh my gosh i thought that that was hilarious (laughs) so yeah but he's good as dead to the rest of the world (laughs) (laughs) but you know he was actually um his thing was he, he uses some marriage manual that you have um, that you've produced or something. Sure. And yeah, well, it's not been published. I just I basically produce this stuff and give it away to people because I want people to use it. But yeah. Yeah. But where have you you've been published more than once, right? Well, yeah, little things. I mean, Luther Witness has published my stuff uh, and then other um, uh, online organizations have used some of my stuff. So I mean, nothing nothing of you know huge consequence yeah well partly because i'm not trying either (laughs) i guess you have to submit your work for people to even consider it and i guess i mean i'm so naive i'm like well maybe someone will just come along someday and say hey you're just a nobody we like to publish your stuff and that's how it happens but probably doesn't work that way you know it really doesn't and nobody stumbles upon manning iowa you have to look for it yeah 
Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, yeah, I tell people we are centrally located. We're in the middle of everything, but close to nothing. Yeah. Yeah, close to nothing. Welcome to my life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. But I, so I was actually just coming back from a men's retreat and I was all amped up because uh, on the drive back, I was giving a, uh, one of the guys a ride back and um, he's, he's loosely affiliated with our congregation. He's, he's not a member, um, super strong Christian, but we got into this conversation about creation and uh, age of the earth mm-hmm. kind of stuff. And it's, I can't, I mean, so that just happened Saturday and uh Mm-hmm. It's the number one question I get all the time is, is Christians get hung up on, um, especially when it comes to the age of the earth. And I mean, evolution is, is a bit part of that. But I, I've always thought like age of the earth is the the biggest hang up for Christians and non-Christians considering the Christian faith. So um, give me definitively, how old is the earth? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're a jerk. Okay. <laughs> 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 well, as you well know, anyone who says I know the definitive age of the Earth, they're they're blowing they're blowing smoke, right? Mm-hmm. So um, I don't know how old the Earth is in terms of a definitive date. I certainly would fall into the thousands, not millions, camp. I I know that you have uh, some Christians who will do uh, genealogies mm-hmm. to try to figure out the age of the Earth, and that's certainly one mechanism to try to do it. I don't think it's a slam dunk to get like the hard and fixed number. I think that maybe overlooking uh, some evidence that uh, uh, there's some gaps there. So I definitely view in the thousands, not the millions. Uh, but in terms of a definitive age, I don't know. The The difficulty I have, though, is so much, of, like you mentioned, the evolution component of it. What happens in the conversation so, so often is you get science, in, in air quotes, pitted against religion. And what is happening so often in that conversation is science is really, um, oh, it, it's a cover for uh, a whole worldview that's being smuggled in. And the whole worldview that's being smuggled in with that term is that basically naturalism is king. And we won't, we won't even consider any evidence that would challenge this. That has to be ruled out of court right away. So we have to, in our variables, in our assumptions, we have to assume long ages. We have to fill those in where we have our variables, because in order to get where we are now without God, you have to have long ages. So it's assumed before it's ever proven. So uh, that's what bothers me about the whole debate is there's a whole bunch of assuming going on. And and instead of uh, acknowledging, I mean, my point is just, Put them on the table. Let's just put our assumptions on the table first and be honest about it. Because my assumption is I'm going to begin that I think God's word is true. And I have a lot of uh, reasons why I believe that. And if it's true, then then I don't see any room for millions and millions of years to be stuck in there. Your assumption is that, that God is either non-existent or irrelevant and had plays no part in this. And so any evidence that would suggest that God is involved, you throw out from the get-go. And you have to have millions of years before you can even begin your conversation because you've assumed God is irrelevant or not present. And so I think we could kind of get to the level of the assumption before you can even begin to have that conversation. Yeah, and I'm sympathetic with that mindset because the natural sciences can only test for 
natural things. And, you know, by definition, God yeah. is supernatural out, outside of nature. Right. So, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. I always describe it as, as a, a litmus test or, you know, a, a test that that measures for acidity. You know, that's that's cool, sure. but that's not going to work to test the voltage, you know, in a circuit. <laughs> so right. you, you so, can't put no, God to the exactly test. Right. But you do have a lot of uh, fabulous authors out there that are pu- publishing, like Stephen Meyer's book, um, uh, Darwin's Doubt and the Signature in the Cell, where he does a great job of saying, that, or uh, other uh, intelligent design guys, who are saying, look, there's enough evidence here that is strongly suggestive of, of intelligence involved. So one of the articles that I, I, I wrote for my, my little congregation's newsletter uh, here in, in Manning, Iowa, <laughs> uh, is called Reasoning from, Eff- from Effect to Cause. And I'll spare you uh, reading the whole dang thing, but here's what, here's what it is. So here's how I, I like to think through it. So one of the things you'll, you'll observe as you talk with me, and you've talked with them before, but other people listen to me now. <laughs> before I start just to say, here's my conclusion, I first want to say, here's the way I'm going to approach this. Here's the way I'm going to think about this. All right, here's how I'm going to approach the question. So, you know, uh, we're ta- talking about, uh, you mentioned that much of science is based on natural causes and so forth, and I can only test for that, and, and I agree. However, uh, there, once you start to look at what, what the science shows, it's highly suggestive, and here's what I mean. So reasoning from effect to cause. We do this all the time, okay? So let me give you a couple examples. Uh, I get in my, my vehicle, and you know I drive the Silver Bullet. Love it. It's us. It's our 12-passenger van, <laughs> right? It actually has the Silver Bullet painted on the side because I figured if you're going to drive a boat, you might as well name it. <laughs> Love it. So, so I get in my Silver Bullet. I start the engine, and the service engine light comes on, and I put it in gear and try to drive it. It's just bucking like a Bronco. I'm thinking, something's not right. So what I've got is the effect of this malfunctioning vehicle. When I finally figure out what the cause is, the cause is squirrels. (laughs) Squirrels have chewed my wires. I have no love for squirrels. Right. So that's the cause. A reason from effect to cause, or a more simple one. You walk outside and it's wet everywhere. That's the effect. What's the cause? Well, probably it rained. You walk outside, you see uh, splotches of water on the sidewalk and pieces of rubber balloons all around it. That's the effect. What's the cause? Well, probably my kids are having a water balloon fight. So we reason from effect to cause all the time in our life. That's a normal procedure. Now, let's say we walked out into the field and we saw this huge perfectly spherical object. Let's say it's 12 feet tall. It's perfectly spherical. Now, that's a head-scratcher because everybody knows that while nature can round things, the chances of getting a perfectly spherical object of that size in a field is not too likely. So you'd have a real head-scratcher. But what if you got into a spaceship and you went out into outer space and you turn around and you'd say, holy smokes, there's a spherical object floating through space. It's, it's orbiting around another spherical object that's blazingly hot, and it stays in this perfect uh, orbit always. And, and so you just look at all the way it's, it's structured and you start to say, whoa, what would, it, what would produce this effect? So now you start to look at the creation, the, and you start to say, what is the effect I'm observing? What are the things that I'm seeing? So if you just reason through a few of these, so for example, you say, okay, 
there's stuff here. It's matter. All right. So, all right, we have to account for the matter. How, what is the cause that produces the matter? Now, you could say, well, the matter is eternal. Uh, there are a few problems with that. One is philosophical. One is theological. One is um, scientific. One is uh, philosophical. The philosophical one has to do with traversing an infinite, and I'll spare you all the details there. But basically, if if I was going to mail you a letter and it had to go through an infinite number of mailmen before it got to you, you would never get it. Right. But if the mailman shows up at your door this afternoon, ding dong, there's a letter, you know that there hasn't been an infinite number of mailmen before that. Basically, all that tells us is philosophically, this is an old argument, but matter can't be infinite because we would never actually arrive at this point. Right. Scientifically, when you start to look at the universe, and this is uh, more than I fully understand, but talk about the expansion of the universe, you start to see that, huh, the universe is expanding. And so scientists, they rewind the clock and they say it must have had a beginning point, which mm -hmm. for a naturalist is a scary, which is a scary thought. Yep. If you're a naturalist and you say the universe has a beginning, uh, if things have a beginning, they need a beginner, right? A beginner, right. something that started it. So, so you see matter and you see scientifically and philosophically that it cannot be eternal. So matter has to have had a point when it didn't exist. Something brought it into existence. So whatever brought it into existence can't be made of matter. Right. By definition, it can't be. So, okay. Now you can go with the whole Big Bang thing, and I have my own uh, uh, thoughts why that doesn't work. But for now, you have to ask yourself, what's most likely? Something brought matter into existence. We have to re reason from effect to cause. Number two, we see inconceivable order, and I'll just spare people all the detail, but all the physical constants that we see in uh, the universe, uh, they're up, up to like 40 now. So uh, to put this in perspective, and I don't even know all the names for all the constants, I just know it's about 40. But you remember, so my family used to own this old 1985 uh, Ford uh, Probe Ranger. Oh, that was And it, and it had the... <laughs> Oh, that was, that was fantastic. To put it in four wheel, you had to go out and turn the little knob on the on the on the front wheels, yes. right? So it even had it was black and even had in hot orange four by four down the side. It was just great. <laughs> nice. It was classic. But anyway, the radio on it was that old dial radio, right? You had to crank it until you got to the station. Well, so let's imagine for a minute that there's only one possible radio station on this dial. And it turns out there are 40 dials that have to be turned to the precise calibration to get that one channel. Now, you sit down in your vehicle and you see all these not dials and you say, oh, my goodness, I'm never going to find that radio station. There's only one on there and I got 40 dials to turn. Right. So you turn on your radio and bam, music comes on. You got the, you got you got lucky. Right. Really? Right. Are you really going to say, I got lucky? You're going to say, somebody set this, right? right? So what we see in our universe is something similar. All 40 dials are set perfectly for life to exist. So we see inconceivable order. We have to ask ourselves, what effect produces inconceivable order? I mean, you just have to ask. And the only thing that we know that can produce inconceivable order, or some scientists will talk about specified complexity or irreducible complexity. The only thing we know that can produce that is intelligence. Yep. And it has to be some super intelligence because we're talking about a universe here. Right. Okay, so it can be made of matter. It has to be super intelligent. What else do we see? 
Well, we can, we see that the universe is immense. I mean, it's it's inconceivably immense. It looks like the date that they uh, scientists have estimated about a hundred. What is this? A hundred billion? What is that? I lost my note here. Billions of galaxies. A hundred billion galaxies. That's what it is. A hundred billion galaxies. Right. So a galaxy can house hundreds of billions of stars right. and be thousands and thousands of light years across. So you say, holy smokes. Whatever made this is powerful. Yeah. Okay. So, okay, not made of matter, super intelligent, powerful. Um, I mentioned uh, you can go a little more detail here, but the ordered information, and I'm thinking now more like if you look inside the cell, and we can go into this later if you want to. Right. But just the complexity of getting a protein is, is astronomical. So, again, we're talking about super intelligence. And we can also talk about personal conscious life. So we see personal conscious life and we say, huh, what cause can produce personal conscious life? And this is controversial in uh, certain circles, but we actually confess that a person and a person produce a person. Right. right? So <laughs> persons only come from person. Mm -hmm. Right. This this is this is a big deal. So we look around and we see persons. So. Whoa. And then we look, okay, the last one I want to talk about is the moral code. Now you could call it natural law, whatever you want to call it, but there's a moral code that tells everybody, even you, that it's wrong to torture babies for fun. <laughs> yes, that is true. You know that. <laughs> right. Even you, as crass <laughs> as you can be, you would never torture a baby for fun. Correct. There is something in you that just says, that's a line I won't cross. Now, you like crossing lines. I love it. <laughs> Just to provoke. Mm -hmm. and there, there are very few lines you wouldn't cross. But mm -hmm. that one, I know you wouldn't cross. Clearly. Right? I mean, you, you look you, like Alfred Kinsey, right? And his whole uh, sex experiment on infants. Yeah. You're not crossing that line. Correct. Right? <laughs> so there are just certain things we know are wrong. And this moral code transcends us. Right. So you have to ask, what produces moral codes? Like the number seven doesn't produce moral codes, all right? Rocks don't produce moral codes. Only conscious moral agents produce moral codes. Right. So we've, we've, looked at the, we've looked at the effect. Now we have to say what we just to summarize. Our cause is not made of matter. It is super intelligent. It is inconceivably powerful. It is intelligent and it's living. It is a conscious personal super mind and it's a moral agent. Huh. Now, if I were to open my Bible just to the first verse, and it says, in the beginning, God created. Yep. Well, I think the Bible begins in the most reasonable place you can possibly begin. I mean, it doesn't have to prove that God exists, because this is where even, even the unregenerate mind can reason through what I just did. Right. And Paul talks about that in Romans chapter 1. Our problem is not lack of evidence. Our problem is that we've suppressed it. So you have this guy, Jay Bujajewski. He writes this great, I love his name. Uh, he writes this book, What We Can't Not Know. Maybe you've read it. I have, uh, I love but, it. Uh, it's a fantastic book. He writes a lot of great books. But basically he's making this argument. We, we suppress the truth. So when I look through the evidence, that's what I come up with and I say, this is the most reasonable place to begin. Uh, God is involved. And all of that is using this philosophy and science 
to reason to the most reasonable conclusion. Like I said, I didn't open my Bible to the very last part of it where I opened the Bible just to check and go, ha, huh, that's what the Bible has been saying all along. Um, there's this great quote, and I don't know if I'm going to be able to find it right now, uh, Robert Jastrow. He, he writes this. Um, oh, here, I found it. This is great. I love this. He says, consider the enormousness. Uh, so Robert, Robert Jastrow, by the way, is an American astronomer, physicist, and cosmologist. In other words, he was a smart dude. He's been dead for 10 years, but super smart dude. He says, consider the enormousness of the problem. Science has proved that the universe exploded into being at a certain moment. It asks, what cause produced this effect? Who or what put the matter or energy into the universe? And science cannot answer these questions. For the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountain of ignorance. He's about to conquer the highest peak. As he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. <laughs> I love it. That's a scientist. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's brilliant. He's spot on, though. So, you know, I, I think, and we bring this reason to bear in this whole question. No, I can't answer how old the universe is. Nobody can definitively. Right. But I can come alongside and say, you know what? All the evidence points to exactly what the scriptures affirm. And if you wanted to a little bit talk about the created kinds and so forth and how this uh, plays in as well, uh, I can do that. But it just seems to me that if we, just, if we start just to use reason and let it take us wherever it leads and not put these blinders of naturalism on artificially, I mean, I'm all for saying when you're doing science, let's not at every point saying, oh, you know, like God did a magic trick. No, this, this is a lot like when you open your engine and you're marveling over the complexity inside of the, the, the hood of your car and you're saying, whoever did this is intelligent. They're brilliant people. Uh, I, but I'm not going to say, well, magic happened here and magic happened here. No, I really want to do look for natural causes and explanations. But that doesn't deny that God has made that possible or that he has ordered it in such a way so that we're able to discover Right, and you have all kinds of uh, fascinating things. Um, I'm trying to get too far afield, but um, uh, the book, uh, The Privileged Planet, mm -hmm. right? Um, Guillermo Gonzalez, who used to be at Iowa State but was fired because uh, he was uh, teaching that maybe that uh, our planet is privileged. Anyway, he has this evidence in there that talks about how even the place we're positioned in our solar system, and even the, how the distance of our sun from our our earth from the sun, the moon from the earth, all of these things are specifically um, arranged in such a way to allow scientific discovery. He says, if you were on other planets, you wouldn't have this privilege. Uh, if it was, if he talks about it, if it was just this, this much different, this, just this much different, we wouldn't be able to see beyond our own uh, galaxy, our own solar system. Uh, and so you start to go, huh, what yeah. are the chances that not only would we, we would get what we call the Goldilocks zone, yep. that we would get stuck just in the right spot, that we could also do scientific discovery. So yeah. it's absolutely fascinating that God creates us curious. He puts us in a place where we can discover. So for me, I keep looking at this and saying, wow, there's a lot of evidence here that would suggest there's a creative God. And then I open up this book and it tells, tells me his name and what he's done for me. So uh, that's how I approach this. Yeah, you know what drives me crazy is it seems like the default position then of the rest of the world is, well, because 
Christians or or people of faith, regardless of the faith, believe that God is the initial mover, that God created, that they must then reject science and, and not acknowledge what's right in front of them. And they said, no, that science is discovering the natural means, the, the things that God put in place. So we ac- absolutely believe in a very scientific God. We believe in a God who created these things that you're studying. We, we don't think it's magic. We, we think that he used these means to do a lot of really cool stuff, and now you're studying it. So I, I actually I love science, and, and I think it's one of the, the best mm-hmm. things that mm-hmm. Christians can endeavor in is to learn more about this thing. I just think that it's a created thing, not an accidental thing. And, I mean, it, I think it's critically important for, for Christians to at least um, have a cursory understanding of science, but I think it's really important to get more and more Christians into into the, the STEM fields because there's a lot to learn about God in these things that the rest of the world is calling godless. Mm-hmm. I mean, it just makes sense to me. But I want to kind of circle back to the... Uh, the I yeah, totally go ahead. agree. Oh, okay. So I, I want to circle back to one of the things that I've always no, used... I just totally agree with what you're saying. I, I, I... We got a little bit of lag here on our phone. <laughs> This is, let's not, let's, I'm going to circle back to um, the way yeah. I describe the creation, the way I describe the way um, creation comes about as far as the way we should investigate it. Y- you were saying earlier that you have these assumptions that reasoning from effect to cause, the way I always say is it's as if you come upon a murder scene and there's a woman who's who's been killed and you start with the premise, it can't be the boyfriend. And you say, well – why can't it be the boyfriend? And you say, because she doesn't have one. Mm-hmm. And then I say, but, but we don't know she doesn't have a boyfriend. We, we should investigate to see if there is a boyfriend and maybe the boyfriend should be a suspect. So, well, no, because it is not written on her forehead, mm-hmm. I have a boyfriend, we're not going to consider it. I said, well, you're not, you're not coming at it open-minded. You're coming with an mm-hmm. assumption that because we don't know now, we cannot know and I, I think that that, you know, that book, What We Can't Not Know, mm-hmm. is so great because it, it gives you this picture of um, what we seem to know naturally that we're, there seems to be an agenda to work against because most kids get it. Most kids realize from the jump that there must be something that created all of this and we have to teach that out of them in school and teach it out of them that there isn't a creator and that there is no design and all this kind of stuff. We, we have to actually unlearn what I mean. And, and if you look at the history of humanity, you know, as, as far back as we can go in recorded history, people have always assumed there was a God. And it isn't until the last couple hundred years that we've been saying, well, you mm-hmm. know what? Let's solve that problem because if there isn't a God, then I don't have to be responsible for something. So let's go ahead and do that. <laughs> yeah. Um, let oh, me you're, ask you're you about – on. I, I think of um, – I think it's Richard uh, – go ahead. I was going to say I want to ask you about um, time dilation for age of the earth. Are you familiar at all with uh, that theory? Yeah, I haven't studied this for a while, but gravitational time dilation? Yes, please dive into that for a minute. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, let me know what you think on that. Well, well, I think it's a fascinating theory, and I think it's got possibilities. Um, so um, Russell Humphreys is the guy who I think spends a lot of time on this. Another great um, scientist writing on this idea would be Jason Lyle. 
so those are two great uh, scientists thinking about this. But gravitational time dilation, as I recall, like I said, it's been years since I've actually uh, studied this in any depth. It talks about the effect of gravity on time. And, I mean, this will blow your mind. But, mm -hmm. okay. So you can even see this with our atomic clock here on Earth. we got one over in Colorado, one over in Greenwich, right? Uh, and Colorado's is obviously higher than the one in Greenwich. And, uh, and actually... And you have to go out a few several decimal points, but this, this is this makes your head hurt. But time moves at different rates based upon how gravity acts upon it. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, gravitational time dilation would, and again, it has to do with with it's complicated. But you end up having what? How, how is the phrase? There's a phrase uh, that Humphreys talks about. Basically, a young Earth. But with because of the way gravity has effect, acted on it, yet eons of time somehow have have have, have been traversed in the greater universe. Uh, so it has to do with the, the the effect of gravity on time. Like that's the best I can remember now because I haven't studied it for a long time. If I was given a while, I could bring it back up. But uh, but Humphrey's book Starlight and Time is well worth a reading. It'll make your head hurt, but it's fascinating. Jason Lyle's written on this as well. You can find him on YouTube. I mean, you just Google it and, and you'll find all kinds of videos where he talks about this. But it's a fascinating theory. I, I think we, we keep in mind that, uh, again, like I said before, no one's going to be able to give you a definitive age of the universe. However, there are good scientists doing good, good quality science that are, are coming up with uh, much younger ages for the universe based upon their hard science that just simply aren't getting acknowledged by uh, certain segments of scientists simply because, honestly, and if you get, dig down far enough, because of the theological implications. Right. Because they don't like them. Uh, and I think of the, the uh, um, atheist philosopher, um, oh, he wrote, wrote the book Mind and Cosmos, Thomas Nagel. He, he, he says this. I love it. He's very honest. It, I'm just going to butcher his quote. But effect, effectively, he says, I know a lot of smart people who believe that God is real and they have good evidence about it. And I'm made very uncomfortable by that because I don't want the earth to be that way. I don't want reality to be that way. And so basically he said, I'm desperately looking for counter evidence so I don't have to accept what they say is true. I thought, wow, that's pretty pretty blunt and uh, uh he so his his big his book uh, not to get too far away from gravitational time dilation but his big book was on the the problem of consciousness like how does how does a rock become conscious like, that's kind of a big problem and his answer after he goes through and destroys darwinian evolution he just obliterates it he says it's it, it's not possible so instead of saying, like Anthony Flew did in his book, There is a God, where he comes around and says this problem has suggested that there is a conscious God, uh, Nagel says, well, the universe is just conscious. Matter is just conscious. That's just the way it is. It's a conscious matter. That's why we're conscious. So that's his solution. Really? Really? You, you go through and you dismantle totally Darwinian evolution, and your solution is, well... We're conscious because rocks are actually conscious. We just didn't know it. 
Yeah. So you can see he's pretty desperate. Uh, but uh, the time dilation is a is a great theory. Uh, but I think we just need to we hold it out there as another explanation. But as in all these sorts of things that where man is is trying to come up with that come up with explanations, we need to hold it loosely because we may find other evidence that would alter it. That I just want to make sure we don't take some of the latest theories and say and. That's what the Bible is saying. Well, you know, there were some at certain points who were saying that the sun was the center of our solar system, right? And they were saying the Bible insisted on that. So as our theories about this change, we should just hold them with a little bit of humility. Maybe that's the better word, understanding that they could be wrong or they could be changed. Yeah, I just like the fact that it it puts out there a possibility that for sure, you know, if, if time dilation answers a lot of questions for me and, you know, my understanding of it is, you know, we have this scientific evidence behind it that, you know, at, at a greater gravitational pull, time um, moves more slowly. So, I mean, there's the, the most recent movie, I always forget the name of it, but it's the one where they go in space and whatever. Anyways, they get close to a, a black hole, um, a horizon event, and they go down, the, the one party goes down to the mm-hmm. planet, and they're only supposed to be there for a couple of minutes because um, the time is going to go much more mm-hmm. slowly in the... Uh, in the uh, spacecraft that they're leaving, but something happens, they get stuck, they're in the water, and then they finally get back. And to them, it's been, you know, only a matter of hours, but to the person who was waiting for their return, it had been like five years. And that that's a real phenomenon that, that science is able to, to um, quantify and measure, like you were saying with the, the atomic clocks. We know that's the case. So the, the theory says... At the Big Bang, you know, if, if we adopt that, and as you said very loosely, because uh, I'm not all in on this theory, but if all matter is is condensed down to a single infinitely dense point, then time is moving extremely slowly. And as it expands out right. from that place, it, the, the gravitational uh, effect is lessened. So there's less gravity, so time starts to speed up. So what that does is it gives us the opportunity to, to say two things are true that, that seem to be false. One is that when God says a day, when the, when the Bible says this happened in a day, in the, if you were there at that point, relative, relativistically speaking, at that point, that would feel to you as 24 hours because it would be a 24-hour time period. But from where we are looking backwards at it, um, from a, a less gravitationally dense point millions of years have gone by so both of those things can be true and they they seem antithetical right. but they're mm-hmm. not mm-hmm. so the the right. problem with millions and millions of years is yeah, actually so theological the that i found was it was mm-hmm. yeah yeah um the the phrase that i i found uh is it's young earth old light so, um, and I, I found that quote by Humphreys on the astronaut. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'll read that to you because I think it, it, it's, on, it's talking what you're talking about. So um, it's going to take me a minute to read through it so everyone just kind of hang tight for a second and let your brains be stretched. So he says, the astronaut is scheduled to reach the event horizon, the point at which gravity prevents light from escaping and time essentially stands still. So he's getting close to this uh, black hole. At noon, as measured by his watch. As he falls toward it, an astronomer watching him from far away 
sees the astronaut's watch is ticking slower and slower. By the astronomer's wall clock, it takes an hour for the astronaut's watch to go from 11.57 to 11.58, and then a day to reach 11.59. The astronomer never does see the astronaut's watch reach 12 o'clock. Instead, he sees the motionless images of the astronaut and his watch getting redder and dimmer, finally fading from view completely. So, um, and he goes on and he says, now imagine the astronaut's view. As the astronaut approaches the event horizon, he looks back through binoculars at the astronomer's wall clock and sees it running faster and faster. He sees the astronomer moving rapidly around the laboratory like a video and fast forward. He sees planets and stars moving very rapidly in their orbits. The whole universe far away from him is moving at a frenzied pace, aging rapidly. Yet the astronaut sees that his own watch is ticking normally. When his watch reaches 12 noon, the astronaut sees the hands of the astronomer's wall clock moving forward so fast that he, they are just a blur. As he crosses the event horizon, he feels no particular sensation, but now he sees bright light inside the horizon. His watch reaches 12.01 and continues ticking. So basically, yeah, time effectively stands still near the event horizon. And uh, if the Earth then is located near the center of the universe, which is a, which is a controversial thing to say for, for naturalists, they don't like to hear that because it would suggest some sort of privileged position. But if it was near the center of the universe, if the universe was much smaller during creation week, then the Earth would experience what the astronaut did. Its clocks would move dramatically slower relative to the clocks on the edge of the universe. So if you were standing, Dr. Humphrey says, if you were standing on the Earth as the event horizon arrived, distant objects in the universe could age billions of years in a single day of your time, and there would be ample time for their light to reach you. So, yeah, that'll make your head hurt, but, but that's what you're talking about. Exactly. And um, the, the way I kind of describe it for people when they when they say well why uh, how does evolution and christianity conflict with each other and um it's a it's a theological conflict it's it's not a scientific conflict because i mean we so there is just one option to say here is how the earth can measure to be millions and millions of years old um by by the standards of measurement from our position um uh, relative to gravity and and time at the same time, you know, it's it's an option to say these things in the Bible can stand as accurate, and that's important. But a little caveat to the side of that is if, if we can think of one way in which that works, right. whether that's the right way or not, I don't care. It just – it gives me an alternative, and if there's one alternative – Chances are there's more than one alternative, and it it's likely something that we don't know yet as as Christians or scientists. But the point is that the way that evolution, the theory runs, is contrary to the Bible because of this problem of death. And I think Christians overlook that because – uh, theologically, uh, yeah. we say that you know if if evolution as it stands currently is accurate, things were dying before there was sin, and and that's the crux. That that's why Christians do need to die on the hill of evolution because it's it's important that sin and death are connected because the the solution to that in in Christ is actually pretty pretty darn important, <laughs> don't you think? <laughs> Yeah, 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, like you said, if you put sin before, I mean, death before sin, it, it makes it makes it really hard to get to, to Genesis, the end of chapter one, and God says it was very good. Yeah. Really? <laughs> Would anybody look at our world today and say, "Yeah, it's very good"? <laughs> All you gotta do. I mean, I don't don't watch uh, TV. I don't watch the news on TV. I, I I'm here. That's how geeky I am. I read the Wall Street Journal. <laughs> <laughs> but um. But but even there, uh, it doesn't take much to say. I gotta say one word, one word, Kashagi. Okay, oh, right. Is the world very good? No. No. You got that that kind of stuff. You got Asia Bibi just being pronounced uh, acquitted, and you have the Muslim world in Pakistan is is calling for her death because she's being accused of blasphemy against the, Muhammad, the Prophet Muhammad, and the evidence is not there. Is the world very good? No. Uh, how many people you know who've been sick? I mean, I mean, how many people have you buried in your church, right? I mean, I've done over 108 years here at Zion. You're telling me the world is very good? I got numerous people right now who are battling cancer and all kinds of horrible stuff. Is the world very good? You throw in millions of years, you're throwing in death and suffering, you have God say, yep, it's very good. You got a huge problem. Then you got the problem with Paul, who says that death comes by sin, and you're starting to really scratch your head, and Jesus comes to deal with sin and death, but death has been very around for millions of years, and God called it good. I mean, you start to go, I, I don't know what to make out of the Bible because it starts to fall apart left and right. That's because you've taken the foundation and you've taken a, a, a jackhammer to it, and you've just crumbled it, and you can't figure out why your walls keep cracking. Well, that's why, because you've attacked that. And, you know, I know we're going to transition to this, but that creation piece is not just important for establishing the veracity of Scripture is not just important for establishing that, that uh, the, the problem of death and so forth, but we start to talk about sexuality and identity. This is just as important to get creation right. And when we start to attack that or dismiss it, which a lot of your mainline churches have done, it's no wonder they buy into the sexual revolution stuff. Because in order to embrace the, the sexual revolution, you have to you have to discard and disregard the, the significance of creation. Absolutely. You absolutely must, because God's pretty clear what he calls good, and, <laughs> uh, and we can build on that. But you have, to, you have to distance yourself from that in order to be, to be able to embrace the sexual revolution. Yeah, and that's a great um, pivot point because if there is a design, if there is a designer, and um, I always uh, – when, when I'm trying to talk to people who are – and, and I do this a lot. I, I am fortunate that um, you know, it's part of my personality or whatever it is. I get to interact with a lot of people who aren't Christians, and I, I truly enjoy it. it. It It's not something that frustrates me. I, I like it. I like people who aren't Christians almost more than I like Christians sometimes because they they sometimes seem a little bit more— <laughs> I understand. Yeah, I mean it's just, it's just cool. Anyways, um, I always say that, you know— <sighs> We think that everything, if, if there is a designer, we think that um, they ought to have some sort of, I don't know, agency or authority or right over what they have designed. In other words, um, when you when you design, you invent something, you have a patent on it. It's yours, and you get to you get to decide what you're doing with this thing. And somebody can't just come along and say, "Well, I, I think it's something different." I had a, a teenager once who uh, was a 
budding musician. She was really pretty good, and and she had this album put together, and we were having this conversation, and it was a little bit about sexuality and, and that sort of a thing. And I and she gave me a copy of this because she's like, man, I just love this. I want you to have it. And I listened to it, and it's beautiful, like full of angst and teenage drama and and all of this. And, and she's like a super liberal feminist. And I go, well, here's what I listened to that. And here's what I think this song is about. I think it's about how women belong in the kitchen and should stay barefoot and pregnant and uh, how they're inferior when it comes to the sexes. And and she – I mean she flipped her lid. I mean she totally lost her shit. And she was like, that is not what that song is about. And I go, well, can't I decide what your art is about? And she said, of course, no. <laughs> you don't get to decide what my art is about. And right. I go, so do we get to decide what God's handiwork, what his artwork is really about, intended to be designed and used for? No. So it's a, it's a great transition to, I'm going to just drop this question on you and uh, nope. see right. what you think. How many genders are there, John Connor? <laughs> How many genders are there? Great question. So, uh, Two sexes. I'm going to use that term, and I'm going to, but I'm going to say this, and this is important. And I, I'm basing that off this, obviously off of two things. One, Scripture is pretty adamant on that, and honestly, uh, science is pretty clear on that too. I mean, if, for example, to be crass for a minute, if you have an extension cord and an outlet, there are only two options there. They only fit together one way. Okay. <laughs> So and I, that, that's crass, and I'm not trying to be crass on this subject. But what where I want to be speak, I want to speak very clearly, but also very sensitively. And here's why: because what I think part of the problem is is there are two sexes, but there are hundreds of different ways to 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 express yourself as a man or to express yourself as a woman. And I think this this is we've gotten this wrong in the church sometimes. We have stereotyped to such a degree what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman that when certain people don't find that they fit that, uh, it causes all kinds of angst in their hearts. And so, you know, there are some men who actually don't like, you know, this is going to shock you, they don't like shooting guns. What? And they, they don't like, you know, grunting and scratching in the woods. <laughs> it's just not their thing. Mm. I know, I know, but... <laughs> And the, where we have to be, we have to be careful. Is it doesn't make them any less of a man if they would prefer. Now, I'll pick an extreme so we understand. If they would prefer ballet and the, the symphony over those things, where we've gone wrong is say, well, they're not a man, right? And that's that's just wrong. It's 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 it is a hurtful to to people to to basically what we're doing there. And this this gets to the heart of some of this. What we're doing is saying, you don't fit as a man. You don't fit as a woman. And a lot of your like your transgender stuff is, if you dig down deep enough, and that's where so much of the, the cultural narrative won't even let us go down to the level of where the actual the, the suffering is, where, where the help is needed. They won't even let us go there because they keep trying to legislate uh, what you can and can't do to help people. You just have to right, right away sign off and say, absolutely, take hormones and get your uh, sex change surgery, and that'll fix your problems. We haven't even started to ask any deeper questions. When you start to ask some deeper questions, sometimes there's some trauma involved, 
But lots of times it's because for whatever reason, they felt rejected as a man or rejected as a woman. They didn't, they didn't, they weren't accepted in that femaleness or that maleness. And then what starts to happen is, and man, the power of the human mind, uh, this, this, this always amazes me and depresses me about human nature that we have the ability to lie to ourselves and believe it. Yep. So we start to fantasize about, about escaping this body, right? So uh, this happens with people who have some dissociation issues. And it seems like, based on what I'm reading, there's some dissociation going on for those who are struggling with their gender identity. There's some dissociation going on that says, if I escape this body, I can be accepted. And the problem is my body. So I want to think through that for a minute because I, this came up in confirmation class here just a couple of weeks ago where we were talking about this. And I said to my seventh and eighth graders, can a man be stuck in a woman's body? And most of them said, yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Why? Because they've heard the cultural narrative. I said, okay, then think with me for a minute. Just think with me. Let's process this. Okay. I said, what if I said to you that I believed I was seven years old and should be allowed to enroll in a second grade class? Would you think that's okay? I said, when I said, where is the problem here? Is the problem with my body or in my thinking? He said, well, it's with your thinking. I said, okay. I said, if I told you I was a black man, now I'm as white as they come, right? Yes, you um, are. So, <laughs> If I told you that, and I, I, I'm, I'm white, right? I mean, I mean, so like white wall, I, I almost would be not visible, right? So I'm just blending in. Uh, I'm the whitiest, right? So, um, and if I said though, I am a black man, is the problem with my body, or is it with my thinking? They said, "What's your thinking?" I said, "If I told you I was six foot five, I'm not six foot five. I would love to be six foot five. I'm not." But let's say I think I am. Where's the problem? It's in your thinking. If I told you I was morbidly obese and I believed I was 450 pounds and needed to go on a starvation diet and have stomach clamp surgery, would you be okay with that? Now, you know this about me. Um, I'm probably not in the category of, of overweight. I'm probably what you would call mostly just a toothpick. I'm You're a, a skinny, skinny nerd is what you are. <laughs> so is the problem in... <laughs> Yeah, and I, I embrace it. Like I'm, I'm cool with that. And and to make it better, I'm going bald. So it's perfect, right? It's like I'm a bald toothpick. So, um, <laughs> so it's great. It's great. Um, and I'm okay with it. But if I said, if that's what I believe, where's the problem? It's in your thinking. I said, no. There's also a disorder called body integrity identity disorder, where a person who has a healthy body believes he or she is physically handicapped. And so they've gone to doctors and said, I need you to clip my spinal cord or clip my optic nerve because I believe I'm truly a blind person or I believe I'm a handicapped person and you need to bring my body in line with my thoughts. I said, where's the problem? It's in your thinking. Okay, so let's go back to our first question. If I believe I'm a woman, where is the problem? It's not with the body. It is with our thinking. Now, I'm not trying to be critical of a person and say, like, somehow you're a 
bad person or a stupid person because you think this. What it does for me is say, here's where I begin to bring help. I need to help them bring their thinking in line with reality so we can start speaking the truth about our identity and that can start to inform them the way I shape my life. Because we know this to be true, your foundational thoughts about who you are as a person, your identity, that shapes everything from there. Everything from there is shaped by your foundational thoughts about who you are. So speaking creationally, first of all, I am created. I'm a creature, all right? So I, my being is contingent on the creative power of this God, and he has, he has um, sovereign uh, uh, choice over me. His, his will is basically dictated to me on how, how he wants me to live. If he get his, I'm his design, he gets to say. But further, he calls a certain way good. He calls male and female good. So what do we know when we get to Genesis 3? Well, we know that we are fallen creatures, and we know that we are curved inward on ourselves. You know, incurvatus in se. We're curved inward, and our desires are warped. You know this. I know this because you, and I can say this, this in all honesty, you have some very warped desires. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah, you are not even exaggerating. So, <laughs> Will not deny. No, and, and I do too. I, I know it. I've got warped desires. And you and I both know we can joke about them on a certain level. But if you get right down to it, honestly, it grieves both of us. Because you have had these moments when you're not joking around with people. But you've had these moments where you've despaired of ever being free from this warped desire that you, you actually are not proud of. Right. We all have it. All of us. So when I talk about folks who struggle with, with gender identity, I'm not singling them out at all. I am in that boat. I have warped desires too. So what I need to do for me, I have to bring truth to bear to my life. I have to actually start to speak truth to myself. I am a created being. I am created male. These things speak to my identity. And this would be a hugely controversial statement in our culture today. It'll get me labeled all kinds of mean things. <laughs> but I believe, based on what Scripture teaches and even what this, this, just, what, just what reality shows us, that biology informs identity. Now, that's hugely controversial, but what you see is there's a large number of people who are detransitioning or coming back to their birth sexes who are saying that their sex changes, they didn't help because it didn't address the foundational thoughts. They went to the doctor. The doctor never even asked these foundational questions about identity and the way they conceptualize themselves in terms of uh, some of this dissociation and so forth. They didn't ask these questions. They just gave them a prescription and scheduled a surgery. Oh, th this is this is outlandish in my mind. So what's happening, though, and Christians need to know this, you got more and more legislations who are making it illegal even to help people in this way, right? If they want help, they're making it illegal. Uh, so this, this is a hugely controversial thing to say. But I believe that when God says that this is good, he's not being a jerk. <laughs> He's actually saying, this is beautiful, and this is what will enable human 
flourishing. Right. And I believe when he says it's good, it's actually good for us. Now, I apply that across, I apply that across the board for all of us. I mean, I'm the first in line. I have to hear it myself. So I have to hear what is good for me. And here's, here's the really hard question. And here's where sin gets exposed. Here's the question. Do I trust him? <laughs> do I trust him? When he says, this is for my good, do I trust him? Same thing your kids face when you tell them, this is what I want you to do because it's for your good. The question is, do they trust you? Right. That, that's where you really start to figure out uh, where, where sin is hiding. Because we as a people, we don't. We don't trust them because we know better. That, <laughs> that's our foundational belief. So, I mean, I, I've got way more to say on this, but I'll stop and see if you've got another question. <laughs> well, uh, it's not a, a question as much as um, I have kind of developed over time um, a slightly nuanced way to think about it. Not that I don't disagree with you, uh, but I always add to it this: when it comes to um, uh, you know the the sexes, it's this design and, and does biology um, have something to say about your sex and and also gender? Um, the answer is absolutely. So there there we agree, and the culture on the one hand, wants to disagree with that. And as we both kind of hold on to, science says, no, this is, a, this is a thing. But I think we fail also to take into account that sin is not just this uh, ethereal, like sort of uh, existential thing or these choices and actions. Sin actually impacts uh, biology. So, I mean, every time a kid is born broken and handicapped we don't say yeah that was god's design like no we say that definitely is not the way god designed that kid and uh it's the reason why that child was born with um a malformation or something is a result of sin so when it comes to to sex i what boggles my mind is it's like both the christian side and the culture the the zeitgeist that's out there right now None of us are talking about the brokenness when it comes to sex chromosomes and the brokenness of biology, and does that play a role? And one of my my favorite examples is uh, Andreas Krieger, who used to be Heidi Krieger, who at the age of 16 was a budding track star for the East German Olympic team. And at the age of 16, without her knowledge – they started giving her massive doses of turinabol, which is um, an anabolic steroid that is still to this day, like if you wanted to get to, to gigantic, goofy-looking musculature, that's what you take. And she, um, over time, now I should say, sorry, he um, will say that um, for reasons um, he didn't understand, started to become attracted to... Um, women and started to develop questions about his gender. And I don't think, I mean, he says today it was definitely that he was being doped without his, um, his knowledge of that. And so he underwent a sex change in, I want to say 2004, 2007, something like that. It was in the news. It was a big deal. That, that person is completely ignored by by both sides, can, and and can we say that the the way in which our biology may be broken because of sin can play a role in 
this this whole movement of transgenderism and it's it's dangerous to say that because somebody who is struggling with their gender identity or, or struggling with um thoughts about changing sex the problem is to say this could be a result of sin um well i, I think everybody understands why why that's a dangerous thing to say but we know there, there's at least 15 different sex chromosome abnormalities and um the the rate at which that occurs in children is estimated between like one in 400 or one in 500 so if you've got a church of 500 people you can be relatively certain that somebody that that you're preaching to on a sunday is dealing with a sex abnormality and uh, you know i i know two people with turner syndrome i know one person with um kleinfelters um, and they'll tell you they have – sometimes they just kind of are asexual. Sometimes they have um, – it's just a – it impacts how they feel about themselves and you know, not that I embrace the, the wording of, of the day but um, their identity sexually and how they identify. Uh, I get it. Um, I have a, a little bit of an experience with it when it comes to um, – so some, I think I've told you, if I haven't, um, I've, I've said it on the podcast before, uh, I am undergoing testosterone replacement therapy. So about five, seven years ago, mm-hmm. I just working my ass off in the gym. And it wasn't that I wasn't seeing results. It was that it used to be I'd work out, I would feel great, and I would have more energy. And it just, man, my life was just, Oh, I was just in a rut. I, I was struggling with a little bit of depression and stuff. And I finally went to my general practitioner and I said, you know, can I, can I get in and get some tests and, and, and just doing some reading? It feels like this could be a testosterone issue. And he kind of laughed it off and was like, no, it, it, it's just normal. You know, you're, you're edging towards 40. So this is just how life is going to be now. And I was okay. But I, I made him do the test and mm-hmm. I, I don't think he even looked at it. So then I um, went to a specialist. I go to the specialist, I get the test done, it comes back and like the the way they measure it is also kind of goofy because they measure testosterone um, from age 18 to 80, which, you know, would vary wildly. But for like the total testosterone mm-hmm. number, you should be um, something like around, I think it's a thousand or something like that or, or higher than that. But the, the low end of, you know, where they say you have a low testosterone issue is 300, mine was 270. And the, the one that really matters is your free testosterone. Ouch. And they want your free testosterone between 15 and, and 22. Mine was five. <laughs> so they were like, yeah, this is definitely something is going on. So wow. what, what they do is, is you, you, you take this shot in the ass you know, once a week. Mm-hmm. But what they have to do is they have to manage because as you up your testosterone, um, your estrogen levels also come up. So then you have to take an estrogen blocker. And they monitor your blood work. You go in every mm-hmm. two weeks or so at the beginning to, to see where, where things are at. And um, so you take an est- uh, a t- uh, estrogen blocker. And mine wasn't um, high enough. So my estrogen levels were too high. And the nurse looking at my paper or the nurse practitioner was looking at the paperwork. And she goes, have you noticed you've been moody lately? And I was like, yeah. <laughs> she goes, uh, your test, your, your estrogen levels are pretty high. 
And uh, I went home and, you know, my wife in, in classic Joni fashion, I, I told her this. I said, yeah, they're, they're bumping up my, my estrogen blocker because my, my estrogens were a little bit high. And, and she said, you know, should ask your wife if, if you've been moody lately. And Joni looked at me and goes, you have been acting like a bitch for like the last two weeks. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I get it. You know, like it's the, the – your, your levels of mm-hmm. testosterone, your levels of estrogen – and, and the people who are really coming out against this idea that biology does not impact your your gender and your sex, the, the one community that actually does speak against it openly is the trans community because they are the ones who say, I feel like uh, my mm-hmm. gender doesn't match or my sex doesn't match my body. So what are they looking to change? Their biology. So biology to, to somebody who is trans matters. This is why they have the reassignment surgery. This is why they take testosterone or estrogen to actually change their bodies. So I think it, it's a disservice for uh, Christians like us to say, well, yeah, it is. Biology determines sex and your biology is dude and I don't have to do any more research in that. You have a penis. You're a dude. Okay, but let's consider – chromosome abnormalities let's consider um your your levels of hormones let's let's look at the whole picture and see if maybe because we live in a sinful world something else has gone um something else is skewed up and and address that because maybe that will have an impact on the way you think and i I think that if we could just have that conversation without sounding like jerks Mm -hmm. you know I i think that we would do a a far better job at ministering mm-hmm. to somebody mm-hmm. who is struggling with these things. And, and I feel for them, man, I, I do. Cause I've, I've been in that spot where it's like, yeah, I feel weird and wrong and not right. I figured it out. Hormone issue. I'm good mm-hmm. to go now. Right. I, I think, I think you've raised an excellent topic uh, that, you know, and I didn't mention it before, but you're absolutely right with the biological abnormalities, the chromosomal abnormalities. I think that's a real thing, absolutely real. And uh, coming back though, to my original point, I do think we have two sexes. I don't think you have a spectrum in between. I think you have aberrations. You have uh, what we would speak theologically. You have effects of the fall that have affected us biologically. Absolutely, you see that. And so what you end up with and so you have, to, you have to speak carefully on this because I don't want to embrace some of the ideology of some of the, the sexual revolution. But I do want to understand that biologically there can be aberrations, there can be uh, abnormalities. And honestly, sometimes when you're dealing with something that's broken, you know, like for example, in, in some extreme cases, it's really hard to know whether a person is a male or a female. And sometimes... You just have to pick one, yeah, uh, and do your best to, to 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 live with a broken situation. Yes, absolutely. I think we need to not be insensitive to the biological reality. Uh, you know, my my usual um, uh, interaction though is more with the ide- ideology of it, and then, like I said, the short circuiting of the help for those who have experienced trauma or those who have. Uh, uh, been rejected as a male or a female, and that is affecting them psychologically. But we don't help them on, on that front. We just kind of do the knee jerk. Well, go have a surgery. We haven't actually dealt with uh, that 
the help that those people need. So I think you have two different uh, types of help. One is to be really uh, uh, aware that there are biological abnormalities and, and we need to bring healthcare to bear on that as best we can and make the best out of something that's broken. On the other side, we need to make sure we aren't ignoring someone's uh, uh, internal like mental uh, wrestlings and struggles and, and not that we're not addressing uh, some of the pain they've been through that way, which may be at the root of some of this. So I think uh, your point is basically we would, we would stop being jerks with this and really start to listen to each individual and where their point of struggle is. But at the same time, I need to maintain that what God calls good is good. And we may not be able to get to that point because of the, the severity of the brokenness, but it doesn't mean that we can't hold it up as good and as a, a, the hope that still is before us that our Savior is going to renew this earth and restore uh, all that is that is lost and make whole all that is broken. And we can hold out that hope for people, even as each of us in, in every circumstance, we bear these crosses but we do it together, right? That we have great empathy. So your trans, your people who are, who struggle with gender identity or same-sex attraction, they're welcome in the church. I yeah. really think we need to do a better job of welcoming them in the church. Just like someone who, who, who struggles with an eating addiction or an alcohol problem or any other number of issues that we, we find to struggle with, they're all welcome in the church because the church is a place for messed up people. And that's why I'm up front because I'm the messed up of them all, you know? Yeah, and it's um, from my perspective, I the, the way I articulate it is it's not that there's a, a spectrum of sex. Um, well, the way I talk about it is there's a design, you know, there's an intention. There is, I mean, it, if it's one in 400 or one in 500, you can still say that that's a deviation from what is the, what seems to be a standard binary system. And so it's not that there's supposed to be a spectrum, but if we have some of these, mm-hmm. you know, X, X, Y, um, or, or some of these other, you know, chromosome deletion, the problem yeah. is, um, as soon as we say it's an abnormality, people's hackles get up and they get all pissy and, and they're like, well, that's, you can't call me abnormal. I'm like, well, mm-hmm. and here's, here's the other thing is that none of us are mm-hmm. born normal and none of us are born right and there is no um we we talk about what god calls good but what god calls good we don't have the full expression of that since adam and eve and we won't have the full expression of that until the resurrection at the resurrection there aren't going to be any deviations (laughs) you know it's i mean there'll be there'll be uh deviations in i think hair color you know eye color skin color and there'll be deviations in, in some of those ways but None of that will be um, something that that is outside of the intended design of of male and female. But I was kind of setting you up with that initial question way back when, um, because I I think that it's interesting that we've confused sex and gender so much, and the church should be the ones getting this right, and and we have got it wrong so much. Like when you talk about what it is to be a man. I would say that there is the the most conservative right wing Christian nut job will tell you that they believe in two genders, but they mean sexes because they actually believe in no less than four genders Mm -hmm. because they will tell you there is a difference between a boy and a man and a girl 
and a woman. And at that point, they'll also probably add, maybe they don't, but sometimes Mm -hmm. they'll add tomboy or an effeminate guy. And if if those carry negative connotations, they they shouldn't. You know, like you were saying, one guy likes the ballet, one guy likes to go and kill things in the woods. That's, there's nothing, Mm -hmm. there's no value judgment on either of those. But the point being is that it used to be far more standardized. Mm -hmm. We had very specific gender roles. And I don't, I'm also not giving a value judgment on that. I think that the culture does define gender in a lot of ways because if the culture is telling you this is men's work, this is women's work, you're defining gender roles, you're kind of defining genders. And I am all for challenging that stuff um, in, in a lot of regards, not not every regard, but in a lot of ways. I mean, I, I do all the ironing in our house because I'm good at it and my wife sucks at it. So if that's women's work, then, then mm-hmm. I'm confused mm-hmm. about my gender because I kind of like ironing for some weird reason. Sure. But um, – mm-hmm. You know, how, how does the church address – yeah. <laughs> well, it does. So I, I also – another another like sort of sideways weird thing about me is, you know, and I've shared this on the podcast countless times, is I've, I kind of struggle with um, – It's we're, we're working on a diagnosis right now, my, my therapist and I, <laughs> and it's uh, kind of OCD, but also yeah. we're wondering if it isn't uh, trichotillomania, which is a fun word that uh, it's usually applied to people who pull out their own hair, <laughs> and I don't do that. Um, but sometimes when, when you get caught in repetitive uh, thoughts or behaviors, it, it's, it's lumped under that same category and, and you get caught on this, uh, behavior of, of plucking out your eyebrows or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I get, I get stuck in, and caught in sort of little repetitive mm-hmm. things, which is, um, in some ways serves me well because I, I love working out because of its repetitive nature. So I, I get in pretty good shape, um, but the the downside of that is if I get stuck mm-hmm. in that mode, I might be at the gym for two and a half hours, and that's not productive. <laughs> so uh, I could work on that. Um, but yeah, it's the the point of right. that is to say, you know, we have to deal with sin in its biological reality, not just its um, like like I was saying before, this sort of non tangible. It's just this. Th- thing, this concept and, and choices because I was tempted to do this right, or right. tempted to do that. We have to deal with it in a way that is real and mm-hmm. human. And part of that includes we have people who don't fit a standard gender role. Now, that doesn't mean their sex is misassigned. Um, it just means that we haven't done a good job of embracing a lot of different kind of ways to be men and women. Um, so I'm interested in your in your thoughts on, on how does the church or how can we as as Christians individually address that because it seems like we're in a good position to to witness to minister to counsel people who struggle mm-hmm, with mm-hmm. where do I fit as a as a man ish woman ish how, how do we minister to them? Oh, that's a great question. So, uh, just to you know, pick up on what you said a minute ago, and, and I I've pointed this out in newsletter articles and sermons, but this gender stereotyping, it's wrong. I mean, it's just wrong to pigeonhole people into a certain certain uh, gender stereotype that says basically if you're going to be a man, you have to do this; if you're going to be a woman, you have to do this. 
But when I come at it theologically, and I, I would often turn to like Ephesians 5 and, and Christ in the church, and this would be specifically regarding the marriage relationship. So, you know, don't, don't take it beyond that. But uh, just in the marriage relationship, first of all, I think we do find some, uh, some helpful guidance. And the way I have sort of sorted this out for how I would live as a, a man, uh, a married man, and, and how my wife will live as a married woman it, 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 like you said, it doesn't matter who's cooking the meals or doing the ironing. That That's in many ways irrelevant. Uh, each, each couple sorts that out for themselves, how that's going to work. And and it's wrong for us to say, oh, well, he does the laundry. You know, he's doing a woman's job. No, that's gender stereotyping. But when we come to how we interact with each other, this is the kind of the pithy way that I've sorted it out in my head based on Ephesians 5, is that the husband is to love sacrificially. And that's as Christ loves the church, but that he would seek to die to his own desires, his own will, his own way for the well-being of his wife. And the wife would live deferentially toward her husband. Paul uses the word respect. Uh, but, you know, I could go on quite a while on, on how we get this wrong in our culture. But the way we interact with each other, uh, wives deferentially toward their husband, which scripture calls the head and and. The, the husband sacrificially towards the wife, which scripture calls the body, and people get all bent out of shape over that, but <laughs> it's not saying that one's more important. I mean, just think about it. Separate your head from your body and tell me which one comes out better. Right. <laughs> uh, neither. It's not going to go well. So you need both. But the honest truth is, at least in terms of the way the scripture speaks, in terms of accountability, and for the first line of accountability it would go toward the husband. He is the first one held accountable for uh, especially the spiritual well-being of his household. And I'm not getting into, like, the husband has to work, the woman has to stay at home. That's not what I'm saying. But at least for the spiritual leader of the household, this would be the husband's primary job. It doesn't give the wife a pass. But honestly, what happens in so many households, and wives shoot themselves in the foot, and I empathize with them, but what happened was the husband tried to do something, and she laughed at him. Well, he quit because men don't like being laughed at because the honest truth is that men are afraid of looking impotent or, or you know, ignorant. We don't like that. Right. We don't like to do things that we're afraid that we're going to do wrong. So you have a lot of this um, um, disrespectful uh, speaking, um, interacting with the husband, and husbands withdraw. And husbands are terrible at showing sacrificial love for their wife. They're just they really struggle with this. Uh, and so I could go on for quite a while, but at least in the marriage relationship, I'm going to bring scripture to bear on how we respond to one another. Then we just, basically what I'm doing is I'm going to walk people through each vocation where they find themselves, and I'm going to help bring scripture to bear on each of these vocations. So you're a son or you're a daughter. What does scripture speak about how a son or a daughter is to interact with his father and mother? All right, so what, what does scripture teach? What does honor mean? So we'll unpack that. So you're a sibling. What does Scripture teach about that? Uh, so in my mind, there are certain things that we would speak about male and female, but we really move beyond that in, in because not moving beyond male and female. What I'm trying to avoid is the gender stereotyping. I'm trying to say you exist as a male and a female in your different vocations. And and you are definitely, you know, God has created male and female. You talked about we may find we have some biological abnormalities. 
but we exist in this way. We don't want to pigeonhole people into a certain gender stereotype. What we really want to do, though, is help them interact in their vocation. So I'm a pastor. What, are, what does the scripture say are my responsibility as a pastor? I'm a parishioner. What does the scripture say my responsibilities as this are? Because uh, these vocations do make a claim on us, and it calls us to behave in certain ways, which may or may not be um, uh, intrinsic to male or female. It, it, that, that may not be the key point in each of these vocations. So uh, as a citizen of the United States, male and female honestly doesn't make any difference at that point. As a father and a mother, well, male and female is going to make a difference because you can't be a, a male mother. You know? right. so, um, uh, so just then I would help people counsel-wise, I would just walk them through vocationally. So I don't want to make male and female kind of the be-all, end-all that, that everything has to be seen through a, a male lens or a female lens because I honestly don't know how I would offer counsel. Well, here's how you are a male citizen, and here's the difference between a female citizen. Uh, I'm not sure now why I'm, I'm bringing male and female in as, as, as in that conversation, because I can't see where it, there really is any substantive difference, but where it does make a difference, I'll bring that into the conversation and we'll work through it individually. But I just don't want to take that category and make it kind of, uh, um, cover, cover everything. It has to be explained through male, female lenses in every single scenario. Yeah. Yeah. So I, the way I deal with it is a little bit, um, uh, I don't know if this is going to be controversial. I, I don't mean to say that I don't believe that Ephesians 5 is the way God wants men and women to interact as, as a marriage. So I'm going to, I'm going to start with that disclaimer. But what I do believe is that it is a godly bandage on the wound of sin. And, and so I point out all the time, the first thing that sin interrupts, the first thing that it, it intersects and um, causes division is men and women. I mean, they, they notice they're naked and they put up a boundary. They, they cover themselves. And so what's really happening in where, where Paul describes that in Ephesians 5 is, is this is a way in which to deal with the sin that is ever present, always between men and women since the fall, since Genesis 3, since this thing went down, this is there's always going to be enmity between you and her. This is how this works. So what I what I try and counsel people towards is the resurrection and say, yeah, I get it. You know, it may, maybe this is a biology issue. Um, maybe, you know, whatever this is, what we're doing is we're trying to find the best godliest ways to cope with sinful broken bodies until I get my one that ain't broke. And I mean, that's what that's what my, you know, TRT replacement is, is all about. Uh, it is what the meds I take for whatever is going on in my head is all about. Like, a, I, I can't fix that in a way that is completely fixed. What I can do is find ways to get as close to work as close to the, the pre-fall condition as I can physically get to, but I'm never going to get there because eventually I'm going to die. <laughs> and the pre-fall condition of Adam and Eve didn't have death. So like I, I, I kind of do this with, with people um, when, it, when it comes to physical stuff and, and exercise. So listen, I'm never going to get to uh, a, a level that I was at when I was 18 or, or 25. Uh, my shoulders won't let me. I got 
I got maybe two bum shoulders now. I'm not sure about the other one at the moment. And I, I can't get back to that spot. But if I'm smart and if I uh, work out in different ways, I can get a, a degree closer to it. And then when I'm 50, you know, that, that degree will change. And when I'm 70, that again, that degree will continue to change. So when I talk to somebody who's struggling with gender or um, their sex or, or whatever that is, I say, listen, there was a design and an intent. And none of us are ever that. None of us are ever the perfect Adam. The, the, none of us are ever going to get ourselves, our mind, our body, our spirit in a place that resembles or is, is um, the same as Adam. That's not the goal. I mean, we will get that at the resurrection. But the goal is let's get as much of that back as we can. And let's work as much in that direction as possible, knowing that we're never going to get there until the Lord returns and <laughs> everything goes back to the way it was originally designed, originally intended. That's that's hopeful. Uh, and that's what I'm trying to do with, with people I work with is just give them, man, just a sense of, of hope. And um, there is so there's so little hope out there. When it comes to people who are are struggling and they feel like there's a barrier to entrance to the church because they're gay or lesbian or they are transgender, they they can't you know God won't love them God God won't uh, consider them part of His family in, in Christ in the church because of this or you know I do I deal with a lot of addicts too um, a lot of addicts believe that once they're sober then they can get right with God. And I go, man, you got that backwards. <laughs> that's, that's not the direction to work with that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think you, you raised some, some great points. Um, so three things I want to respond to. One would be uh, what you said about um, uh, those who feel a barrier before they come back into the church. And the one, now this, this is how I would sort through this. And I'm not disagreeing with what you said. I'm totally agreeing. I, I would use different terms, and here's why. Uh, when we use terms like gay or, or trans, transgender or whatever, my belief is we're buying into the world's terms already, the fallen terms. And I believe we are allowing a person to be labeled by uh, the inclinations that are inside or even to be labeled by the biological abnormalities. And I don't think that we should be labeling people based upon things connected to the fall. So I want to go back to where God calls good. So I would speak of a man or a woman who battles same-sex attraction, or a man or a woman who battles, uh, has struggles with gender identity. But the same point holds true, but it's a, it's a longer way to speak. But for me, this is important. I want to ground their identity in what God calls good and not to use the fallen language that labels them based upon um, anything else. Number two, you mentioned um, that trying to get back to the original goal, uh, you know, the closest to the good as we can, totally agree. And what came to my mind were, for example, this is why the Christian church really encourages adoption. And this is why, you know, with Snowflake Adoption for you, this is why, this is what you're aiming after. Okay, you, you, I'm sure you've heard all the people who have criticized you for your decision to do snowflake adoption uh-huh. and all their reasons why. <laughs> the reasons why are usually rooted in, they're usually rooted in a fallen 
situation, right? So we can agree maybe we shouldn't be using technology that ends up freezing babies in their embryo stage, freezing them indefinitely. Maybe we shouldn't be producing it. But, but your goal is, all right, fine, I can agree with that. But now I need to rescue these these children. They, these are children, and I'm going to give them a home. So I'm going to aim for the, the closest to the good as I can. And and I think that's exactly what the church should be doing in all respects. And that's just one small example, but in all respects. And third, you talked about Ephesians 5, and maybe my nuance would be, and I agreed with what you were saying for the most part, where I come back to is where Paul talks about that husband and wife are basically an image of Christ in the church. And, and this is, you know, bear with me, but this, what I see is that Christ in the church was logically prior to husband and wife. Husband and wife are ultimately modeled after Christ in the church. So chronologically, yes, in time, we see husband and wife preceding Christ in the church. But uh, logically, for God, husband and wife are modeled after this original uh, good thing of Christ in the church. This was uh, God's plan from all along, even though chronologically it wasn't revealed until 2,000 years ago. So when I look at that, I say, if this is the original model, this is what we're modeled after, then this love and respect thing probably is how God wants us to exist as husband and wife. Now, it has nothing to do with who washes the dishes and who irons the clothes, nothing. But it has to do with how we refer to each other and how we honor each other, how we love each other, how we respect each other. Uh, I think that when we get that right and we bring that to bear in our marriages, that I understand myself as the Christ figure. Not that I'm Christ, but that I'm a Christ figure. My wife is the church figure. And I basically form my identity around the way Christ loved the church that really changes the way I treat my wife in, in incredibly and in profound ways that are sometimes inconvenient for me and, and cause me all kinds of discomfort because it means that I have to die to me over and over and over again. And, and why? Because Christ is the model. So uh, maybe, that, maybe that's different than what you're saying. Maybe it's just building on it. But those are the three things I heard that I thought were worth uh, replying to. Yeah, that's good. I would I wouldn't actually um, it, it doesn't disagree. I I would add to your addition to mine. So yeah, uh, husband and wife definitely um, modeled <laughs> after the image of Christ that and Christ in the church. But um, kind of the point I'm making is Christ and the church, and this is going to sound heretical, um, but Christ and the church is the band aid. It's not the band-aid. That's not what I mean. But Christ of the church is the attempt to restore what was broken. And again, not the attempt, but I'm making that comparison of husband and wife. So I would say that, yes, the original model for marriage is the image of Christ of the church. But the original Christ and the church, Christ in the church isn't the original. The original is Adam and Eve in the garden. That's That's origin. That's... That's what we're never going to get back to, and that we should see that too in, in the image of Christ and the church. What we are seeing is uh, close to the resurrection. I mean, when the church is humming and doing things perfect, you know, in our little Lutheran world of uh, word and sacrament, the fellowship of all believers, we have all things in common. We, you know, if if you can catch that for like even a split second, you're saying. 
this is the resurrection, except for we, you know, it's not sort of that, that now and not yet, um, reality. So really the original model is Mm -hmm. Adam and Eve. And the final version of that is the resurrected us. And in between there, we've got this in the meantime, um, how do we deal with the brokenness? Well, we deal with it, husband and wife, based off of Christ and the church, who are all dealing with the same thing, which is a stupid, sinful reality uh, in which we need Jesus. There you go. <laughs> yeah, well, so uh, I hear you. I think, and I, I think we agree. So here's my nuance on it. Um, Adam and Eve, pre-fall, is the perfect model of Christ and the church. Yeah. What you're talking about with Christ and the church is you're acknowledging that when Christ and the church become visible to us, we have a sin-messed-up world. Mm-hmm. And so now Christ is bringing his love to bear on a broken world, and we are seeking to aim toward the, the original good, which is the pre-fall Adam and Eve. Obviously, we're not going to get there. But Adam and Eve ultimately is the original perfect model of Christ and the church. And what you're speaking about is how Christ comes to heal and restore, and as, as and we cooperate as best as we are able to achieve uh, what God calls good, uh, because because we believe it is good and it's good for us, yeah. uh, even if it may not be what our inclinations are. We may not we may battle against it, but we trust God and say He says this is good. Uh, we trust Him. Ah, that's absolutely right, man. That is um, that is the goal, right? I mean, all of this, all of these conversations, all, all of this just kind of finally wraps around. And, and I, man, this drives me crazy that for some reason the evangelical world and I think the Lutheran church in some respects, I'm going to get some people pissed off emailing me. I get it. Um, we have forgotten to preach the resurrection. You know, I, I was just confirmation on Wednesday night with my kids. I was talking Amen. about, you know, what is the the goal of this? Is the goal to die and go to heaven? No, the goal is the resurrection. The, no. the point I, I know, right? It drives me crazy. It's it's supposed to be the resurrection. And and as I'm talking about it, I had this one girl in my class who just I mean, she's That's lifelong it. Lutheran. She's she gets it, but she never spent the time to to like kind of pull it apart in her head and really think about it. And her first thought was Oh, that's gross. Like, I don't want mm-hmm. my zombie dead body back. And I was like, no, 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 that's, that's not how this works. Um, and she, right. yeah. <laughs> she was worried about like, yeah. how, how does this look? And, and as I started unfolding, so every Christian who's ever died, you have all of eternity to hang out with all of these historical people and and in your body, sit and talk with them. You can climb mountains. You can go swimming. You, you're going to be in this new heavens and a new earth. Like her eyes just lit up and suddenly she was like, that sounds better than heaven. And I was like, it is. <laughs> yes. yes, that's the whole point. And I, I love the way. I love the way Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 42 to 44, right? So he, he uses four amazing words to describe the resurrected body. I think it's so fantastic. First, he says, the resurrected body is going to be imperishable. That's amazing. So I always tell people, okay, look, go down to the grocery store, go down the non-perishable food section, turn your can of green beans over. What's on the bottom? Expiration There's an expiration date. date. Mm-hmm. Well, what Paul is saying is the resurrected body won't have an expiration date, which is pretty sweet. Second, he says, the resurrected body is going to be raised in glory. Now, 
this is astonishing to me because glory is the overwhelming effect of God's presence, right? It's the hurricane force power of God. The I can't stand in the presence of this because I'm going to die power of God. It's so amazingly overwhelming. And Paul is saying that that's what the resurrected body is going to be raised in, is in that glory. That's astonishing. We're going to wear God's glory? That's awesome. Third, he says, we're going to be raised in power. Well, I don't know if we're going to get Superman capes and jump over buildings, <laughs> but what Paul is contrasting that to is weakness. And a lot of our conversation has been centered around our own weakness. And you know, as we age, the things that used to work that don't work, we get weakness, right? That's the human condition. But we're going to have power pulsing through our veins forever. That's pretty awesome. And fourth, Paul says, the resurrected body is going to be a spiritual body, but he doesn't mean non-physical. You know from 1 Corinthians that spiritual is, is contrasted against natural. And he's talking about the animating, the animating power or, or what empowers the human spirit and the human body. And he says it's going to be the Holy Spirit is his point. And here's why this is so exciting for me. Because this tells me that all of the sins that I have been attracted to and all of the sins that I get tripped up by over and over again because I'm attracted to them, I will finally, once and for all, be free from that. And just like the way I think about this is, you go to bed at night and you're discouraged because you did the same stupid stuff you've done for how many years now, and you know it's wrong and you did it again. And you despair that you're never going to be free. But tomorrow, Christ raises you in your resurrected body. And for the first time, you're totally liberated from it because you're fully empowered by God's Holy Spirit. So you have imperishable bodies. You have glorified bodies. You have powerful bodies. You have Holy Spirit-empowered bodies on a renewed earth. And Paul talks about that in Romans chapter 8. And Isaiah talks about it in multiple places. John does in Revelation. This is really exciting stuff. And when you start to lay this out for people, like that, like you're a confirmation student, she said, that sounds better than heaven. Yeah, that's the point, right? <laughs> I always tell people it's like this. Imagine all the good stuff and all the bad stuff, all the bad messed up stuff, it's gone. All the, all the good stuff, all the, the really awesome stuff about this earth, it's going to get supersized. That's what's coming. And that, we should be preaching that stuff all the time because that, that, that stuff puts like... It puts jolt in your brain. You just get excited about it. You just get pumped up. And I, I think if we don't preach that, shame on us. Yeah, oh, it drives me crazy, especially at a funeral. And I hear it all the time. I was I was just with somebody um, who passed away recently, and I, a mixed bag in the room. You know, um, a couple of lapsed Lutherans, a handful of lapsed Catholics, and a couple of lapsed Methodists, and then some hardcore. Jesus loving rock star living faith Lutheran people uh, were hanging out, and it was this awkward mm-hmm. moment when one of one of them said, "Well, you know, some, something about um, became an angel today, or you'll always be my angel." And I was like, "Duh, it drives me crazy." I mean, what a downgrade, oh. you know? What a what a reduction in in status to go from the first, you know, the, the pinnacle of all things created yeah. to some chump who's a messenger. Not that angels are chumps. I don't want one to like kick me in the, in the head or anything, but you know, I mean, that's, it's so sad. It's so right. sad to, to, and just that thought of, you know, I always joke in, in uh, my sermons when nobody's died. I, I don't like to, to preach around this sort of a thing when somebody has recently died. Cause I don't want anybody to feel bad about what they were thinking. I go, do you really, 
think that God, yeah. that we all die and we just become Casper, yep. the friendly Christian, chilling out on clouds, floating around like ghosts? I mean, that would suck. I I love yeah. to when I Boring. yeah when I die and I'm and I'm right. at the resurrection, I am going to hug my grandpa, and I cannot wait for that moment. You know, I cannot mm-hmm. wait to. To high five, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. How cool is that going to be? I mean, like, dude, the thing you were doing with, like, civil rights, that was pretty sweet, man. And, like, chat about it. That was going to be awesome. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you know, a funny story. You'll like this. So this is a, uh, you know, sometimes you get called to do funerals off-site, but kind of as a favor for somebody. Mm. So it was one of those deals where I went to the funeral home and did a, a funeral for, for somebody. And she had been here years ago, but she'd been in California for however many years. And she, she had her burial plot here. So she just wanted us to do a service. Her daughter wanted a service. Anyway, she was a big Anaheim Angels fan. And I guess after they, after they win ball games, they light up the halo. I guess that's the tradition out there. Well, she had some Anaheim Angel balloons that she had off to the side which I said, fine, you can have them off to the side. I'm not going to you know, make them a big centerpiece of our funeral service. But we get out to the graveside. And after we're done, I had made it clear, you can do your thing after I've done my thing. This will not be a part of the rite of burial that I'm doing. So she has, she has all these Anaheim Angel balloons. And she has everybody, they have to all three, all together on the count of three chant light up the halo, light up the halo, light up the halo. So they're all doing this, and I'm just going, oh, my goodness. <laughs> so she lets go of the balloons. The balloons are going up into the sky, and the daughter says, there she goes. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> oh I thought, really? <laughs> you, you think your mom is hanging on to one of those balloons? I mean, I don't Oh. <laughs> no, John. She was so hard in to the... help people understand that. No, it's so much better than. Yeah, she's actually in the balloons. <laughs> she's in the balloons. Yeah, okay. <laughs> she's the one that is yeah, the uh, uh, the force that is lifting them. Yeah. She turned into helium. So, this part of. <laughs> right, right. Oh, so we desperately need to preach the resurrection. Desperately need to, to to work that out. There's a great book. Controversial author. I understand. Some people don't like some of his stuff. But N.T. Wright writes the book Surprised by Hope, where he, he lays this out. And you also know, like, Randy Alcorn's book, Heaven, uh, which has some food for thought. But uh, Randy, I mean, uh, N.T. Wright's book Surprised by Hope is really pretty solid. I think he has some, some great things that he lays out there in terms of the hope of the renewal of creation, well worth considering. Well, I'm going to add that to my reading list. Surprised by hope, I, I'm a, I like N.T. Wright. I don't think it's hard to sort through some of the problematic stuff in his writing. It just uh, people get worked up about a controversial author and and want to throw out the baby with the bathwater. Drive yep. me crazy, man. Just be educated, figure it out, read uh, it. I agree. I agree. I mean, right, right. I, I just always have to put that caveat because I know people they get worked up over this. But N.T. Wright, that book, and you also know his Resurrection of the Son of God, which is 800 pages defending the resurrection of Jesus, is outstanding. Mm. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I know that people have their own issues with him, and that's fine. But like you said, read it yourself, figure it out. Uh, don't, don't just not read him because someone said there's a controversy about him. Read it yourself and figure it out. Yeah. 
Yeah, all right, brother. Um, it's been almost two hours now, well, and if uh, you want a re- if you want a reading list, oh, you still there? Or did I lose you? Oh, yeah, here we go. Uh, sorry about that. We're, we are dealing yeah, with I'm some time. Yep, we're yep, dealing I'm with here. some time lag here on our phone, but that went really well. And uh, I'm stoked about it. We're going to do this again. I may try and figure out what this time lag is. It might be better yep. even to do it over uh, internet. But you have some homework, my friend. We talked about this. You've, you've got to get me some um, bios and pictures and headshots. And we're going to build up your yeah. website. Uh, you've got to get on social media. And I love that you hate social media. And I'm going to make you do it because we're going to get this stuff out there and and i'll have you on a a couple more times and this is going to be awesome and i I appreciate this conversation because you are absolutely you know i think you're a brilliant guy and and you are man you're underrated that truly truly are so um thank you for your time and uh we'll catch up again soon all right appreciate that yep you too all righty thanks luke see ya okay bye-bye Well, I hate to say I told you so, but... Wait, no, I don't. I love saying I told you so. I told you so. I told you. I told you that guy's brilliant, right? I mean, there is just no denying it. Um, great guy. Love him. We've been friends forever. And um, like, like I said, you know, that is... What you just heard is the tip of the iceberg. That guy is brilliant. Let's uh, join me in this effort. Let's blow this guy up. Let's get his podcast or let's get this podcast out there uh, so that people can connect with him on his website. Um, I believe that website is going to be John Everett Connor. I've got that locked up, ready to go, and um, I will link to that in the show notes. I will link to all kinds of stuff uh, on Facebook. We'll, we'll do that. So JohnEverett.com. I'm sorry, JohnEverettConnor.com. You can always follow me um, in, on all of the social media stuff at Luke underscore Tim. And you can email me all the things with LukeTim at gmail.com. Until next time, boys and girls, be good.